If you're a Bootstrap SaaS founder looking to grow your company through funding and mentorship, you should apply to be part of the next batch of TinySeed. TinySeed is a year-long remote accelerator focused on founders who want to build their companies rather than constantly looking for the next round of funding. In addition to capital, we provide access to some of the best mentors in SaaS, people like Jason Freed, Chris Savage, and Laura Roeder, as well as subject matter experts like April Dunford, Rain Fishkin, and Joanna Weeb. I'm Rob Walling, the co-founder of TinySeed. We're an alternative approach to startup funding, and we give bootstrapped founders the right amount of capital and mentorship to get them to escape velocity without having to jump on the venture capital roller coaster. If you run a SaaS startup with revenue, I'd really encourage you to apply. Or send us an email at hello at tinyseed.com if you have any questions. I look forward to connecting with you and learning more about your company. Hey, let's let's kick it off with this. Someone asked uh, a question: Why is it called Tiny Seed? Ooh, I like that one. Actually, I am actually curious about that myself because I joined probably about six months after you guys started Tiny Seed. I never thought to ask. Yeah, and remember, Anar, we threw around. I think I still have a doc somewhere of all yeah. these ideas we were coming up with. And you, I think the one you liked most was super critical. Do you remember this? You said no, super critical is, is a sign. Yeah, you this did. Nice you did. Uh, we were trying to come up right here. I told I told Sherry I was like he wants to call it super critical and she's like I'm not a fan yeah <laughs> and I was like well it's like a mathematical construct or something like that right isn't it a computer science construct yeah super critical I can see myself making a joke about it but I doubt I really appreciate it. I I don't remember when we ended up with tiny seed we, we thought there was a bunch of seed stuff small we wanted small like you know start small. small stay small microconf I mean it just My, micro seed I think was in there yeah. I think tiny seed is in part like if we could get the domain for not too much money is what I think. Yeah, that was another. Like that was part of it. That seems to be the it. part of every naming decision now is like, what's the dot com? Huh? Yeah, right. Dot com. Just like startups. Yeah, can yeah. you get the dot com? Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be like, no, 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 it's dot co or dot io or dot us or whatever. So. Yep. Or tinyseedfund.com, which is what we had for a couple of weeks. Remember that? Yeah. Cool. Well, we have uh, we got 125 people in attendance. It looks like it's starting to level out. We're four minutes in, so I think we're going to dive in. Thanks thanks to everyone for joining us today. We are going to talk about Tiny Seed, answer your questions, give you a, a, you know, a refresher on who we all are. If you haven't seen us at microconfs or uh, maybe heard us on Startups for the Rest of Us in the past, because all three of us have been on several times. So I'd love to pass it to Anar. You want to give yourself a little introduction. Anar is a co-founder of Tiny Seed, general partner. And what else do you do, man? That that was pretty much it. Like that was my intro. That's the deal. That All right. You know, I'll, I'll leave it at that, I think. Computer, former computer science professor at Cornell University. And probably a better job than he is. <laughs> yeah. You lasted a year there, right? Wasn't that, you know, uh, I was more like three, but yeah. Three, okay. So, you know, my wife also was a professor and it just got old for her. The the meetings and the politics. And the, is that why you? I, 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 I quit because I wasn't happy there. And then I looked at all the tenure professors and I'm like, half you guys aren't happy either, even though you have yeah. tenure. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't fancy my odds. Yep, yep. Cool. And then Tracy Osborne, the program manager of Tiny Seed. She keeps the, we like to say she keeps the train running on time. Want to say anything to the folks, Tracy, before we dive in? Yeah, I obviously run the the day to day operations of Tiny Seed, an accelerated program. I help coordinate the introductions to the mentors, the 
the calls that we do weekly, all the miscellaneous questions people have, essentially my, my job comes down to just making sure that the founders get what they need as fast as possible. And in my previous life, I was a startup founder. I shut down before I joined, joined Tiny Seed. Before that was in, well, my background is in design and front end development, but I kind of moved into doing a little bit of everything like programming and marketing and sales and whatnot during my startup job. So it's kind of, it's fun being here at Tiny Seed. It's really great that, you know, the job is literally just to help founders do more faster, better, and without, you know, a lot of like anxiety or anything like that, just making their life better. Yep. Awesome. That's what I should have said. That's what I meant to say, actually. That's right? what, yeah, yeah. ditto. We'll come back. Helping founders <laughs> since 2018. Yeah, cool. So uh, quick overview of Tiny Seed. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume everyone has like read the website. So I don't think we need to, to really go back through that. But Tracy, you want to just talk briefly? It's like, we're one year remote accelerator focused on SaaS. You know, what, what else? What else can you offer folks? Well, yeah, yeah. One year remote accelerator, which is really awesome. We were remote before COVID hit. So there's a lot of accelerators that are moving remote because you have to. Our program was designed so that people can do the program wherever they want in the world. And so we have, what is it, one fourth of our founders are non-US, which is really awesome as well. And we'll get to some, that's one of our most asked questions is whether we back non-US founders. So we'll get to that in a second. But essentially the program is designed so people can join the program from wherever they want. They can travel, they can be remote. It's always been like that. Normally we have in-person retreats and that's like the one thing that we had to change with COVID. So we had to move those online because of, for, for safety reasons. And you know, hopefully for the third batch, we'll have some opportunities to do things in person again, cross our fingers, <laughs> we'll see how things go. We run week weekly calls, everything is optional. One thing I try to emphasize for the program is that we, want it's not like a school there's nothing required there's no homework there's nothing like that because we know that founders are really busy heads down working on the things and we don't want to get in the way of that when founders are you know in a flow state but we're there when founders need help and we help them get those answers faster so you know say you're working on your marketing you're moving on to sales we have a bunch of resources to help you get started the sales faster than say if you're starting from scratch so a lot of it we a lot of the program is just designed to help founders you know, get those answers they need, like I said in my introduction, as fast as possible so they can go back and do awesome work on their startup as fast as possible. Very good. We have questions pouring in. If you want to ask a question, we'll obviously be getting to those in just a minute. There's a Q&A button at the bottom. That's the best place to ask them. You can ask them in the chat, but we may we may not get those. We're really looking in the, in the Q&A section. So thanks everyone for weighing in. From Italy, we got India. We have all number of places on this call today. Iowa, yeah. There you go. Yep. So in our vol set, you want to talk briefly about Tiny Seeds basic investment terms. And then we'll do Yeah, questions. so our investment terms are at a fundamental level, what we do is we invest about 120000 for the first founder and about 60000 per additional founder. And for that we take standard uh, somewhere between around about 10% equity. Usually we're we're a price round. So we're not a note or a safe or anything like that. Basically, the one thing that's a little different from us is that we, because the kind of companies that we back, so B2B SaaS companies, they, once they get past like a million or two or three in, in ARR, they, they can inflect to being very cash flow positive. And so what we basically ask the founders to do is to, to, to sort of align investors and, 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 and founders is to say, you sign, sign a, a side letter that says, you know, once you hit uh, a specific salary cap, then any any other sort of remuneration that you're taking out of the company 
uh, goes out as dividend, and then we participate or, or our investors participate in in those in those dividends pro rata. And we're not particularly stingy about the salary cap. Like we don't feel like there's any point in trying to squeeze founders for you know the every dollar that comes through. So I think you know usually our or actually just decided our our salary cap going forward will be two hundred and fifty thousand US dollars per per year, and it it sort of and and some people say that's super high or whatever, but really what we're trying to what we're trying to say is to say these are the kind of companies that can get to five or ten million a year, and and in that case they can be taking out you know two three four five million dollars in profit every year, and in that case it's important that investors also get to participate a little bit in, you know, to compensate for the risk that they took early on. So that's really the main things. There's some stuff around, like we have pro rata rights. We, we basically try to, there's two things we're trying to do. One is to sort of align founders and investors and also sort of preserve optionality for the founders. So we think a lot of the successful companies will end up never, never raising money again. And, and, and that's totally fine. That's sort of what we expect. But we also think that, you know, one or two, sort of 10 to 20% of the companies will decide that actually, you know, they want to step on the venture train and, and maybe try to raise a lot more money and, and sort of shoot for the moon. In that case, like we, we sort of preserve that optionality for founders and we will, you know, we will uh, defend our pro rata rights in those companies and, and help you guys fundraise on the other end of that too, if that's what you want to do. Pro rata rights means that if we own 12% of your company now and you raise another round, that we have the option to put in more money in essence and, and defend our stake rather than to be diluted, in case folks haven't heard of that. That's true. So I just picked up one question in the comments there. It's a specific formula or structure you'd like to see with dividends to keep investors, founders in line. And it's pretty just straightforward. It's like, okay, for the first 250000 you take it out of salary. And then, but if you have $5 million in profit, then... Everything above that 250, we get the, you know, gets kicked out as dividends. And, you know, we own 10, if we own 10% of your company, then we get 10% of the dividends. That's just, just how it goes. Pretty simple. And that's where equity is so simple. I mean, we looked at six or eight different models when, when Anor and I were first trying to come up with how are we going to invest in companies that are not on the, may not be on the venture track, may never sell. And, but, but do it in a way that, that helps the founder. It's pro-founder, but it, it provides enough of a return that, that we can raise money because we have to raise money and provide a return to investors. Otherwise, there is no tiny seed, right? So it's this careful balance. Much like when you're launching your SaaS, you want to charge $10,000 a month, but no one will buy it. So you have to lower your price. You know, it's, it's this real balancing act. And that's why we landed on equity is because we didn't want the terms to be super complicated. And the further we got into, oh, it's it's you know maybe a payback or a profit sharing or this and that, it, there were just tons of if-thens in the, in the bullets. As Anar and I were getting confused about our own terms that we were writing. And finally we said, equity has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Since what is it, the, the Dutch India company? I think that was like the first company that sold equity to other people. And it's a proven thing. It's not something that kind of we made up and ha had a lawyer draft. It's like, it, it just all makes sense and people know how to think that, about that it. That and like some of the more sort of revenue-based financing debt products, you end up in a situation where as investors, you have to go and audit your portfolio companies, which <clears throat> that sounds terrible to me. Yeah. So we like to keep it simple and pretty, pretty chill. So we are going to get into some other questions. If you have questions, obviously it looks like there's a lot coming through, post them down in the Q and a section. We're going to zip through a few frequently asked questions that I think we've already received as well today. We'll start with Tracy. Do we invest in non-US companies? Yeah. So non-US companies, 
Founders can live everywhere, like I mentioned before, but in terms of where your company is incorporated, first off, if you are a US, if your company is incorporated in the US, either as a corporation, I think C-Corp, not S-Corp, that's correct, right, Rob? C-Corp, um, LLC. Yeah, C-Corp or LLC. That is the easiest way for us to invest in you. If you are incorporated elsewhere, we are working on it. So we made our first non-US investment last year, and Scraping B, which is a French corporation, we want to invest in more areas. It kind of comes down to lawyer effort and legal fees and all that kind of stuff. And so if you're a non, if you're a non-US founder and your company is incorporated other than US, and what we recommend is to apply anyways, because then we can have a discussion with you if you get onto the next round and whether it makes sense for us to look into investing in your company, uh, in, excuse me, in your company's country, there we go or if we want to help you reincorporate in the US, which is what a lot of the founders do, because sometimes that has advantages as well. If you're wanting to raise money again after Tiny Seed, it might make sense for you to reincorporate in the US anyways. And so we have a Stripe Atlas deal that will help you go through that process. But long story short, essentially, we recommend you apply anyways. So if you're a good fit, we can have that discussion with you in our interview, in the interview part of the process. Yeah, and it all comes down to <clears throat> cost. I think I saw Anar commenting, someone asked maybe on Twitter, you know, it was almost like, well, it'd be great if you could just invest in any company anywhere, no matter where they're incorporated. And you're like, yeah, but it's like, if it's like 50 grand in legal to close in, you know, I mean, some of these, especially like in Europe, there are some pretty complex tax implications, right, of, of us owning a German company or whatever. I don't know. I don't know which countries are complex, but it, it can get complicated. So we're just trying to balance that. All right. Do you, A&R, do you invest, do we invest in non-B2B SaaS companies? Mostly not, basically. Like there's, if there's some services piece to it, you know, that's fine. Like we, we often see quite mature, you know, B2B SaaS companies that have some services component and that's okay. If you're pure services, probably not. If you're pure B2C, also probably not. Like mostly because those kind of B2C markets tend to be winner take all and quite often requires a lot of capital in order to, in order to, to succeed or, or do a land grab. The, the, the sort of where it gets sort of a gray area and where we quite often are interested is sort of the more B to sort of prosumer rather than consumer. So in that case, we probably would. Yep. And my pat answer with these questions tends to be, if you're in doubt, apply. Because it take it's not going to take you more than I don't know, 10, 20 minutes to fill out the application and and we'll look at it. And it depends on a lot of things. It's like, we don't say, oh, B2C, in my head, I don't say my criteria are not, oh, if it's B2C, then I don't look at it. But I do... I, I do get concerned when I look at a, at a company with a $9 average revenue per customer per month. It's like, oof, that's going to be tough to grow. So instantly I have a question of how are you going to increase that? Do you have plans? You know, and Or if churns 12%, then suddenly it's like, okay, so we have a little bit of an issue there. What are you doing for that? So it's, it's not so much for me that it's B2C. It's B2C businesses tend to have you know, numbers and unit economics that make it a challenge to grow to a seven-figure business, which really is the goal, right? It's a million and up. And that's, if, if your aspirations are to grow a half million dollar lifestyle business, that's awesome. But Tiny Seeds, it's probably not a fit for us. But if you say, hey, I want to get to a million bucks in annual revenue or more, then that's that's really where, that's our sweet spot. All right, Tracy, do we invest in idea or pre-revenue companies? Or do we have a minimum, <clears throat> excuse me, a minimum ARR? And someone asked, I or MRR, I'm sorry, minimum MRR. 
I had a question on Indie Hackers yesterday where it's like, is there a requirement in order for me to apply? You know, is there a minimum yeah. MRN? I was like, no, there's no, requi there's no requirement. Anyone can apply. Like, that's the thing. Again, it doesn't take you a ton of time and we're, we're okay to look through it. But what we've found is the, you know, the patterns we're seeing, you know, kind of, you know, lean us in a direction. You want to talk a little bit about that, Tracy? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a lot of people know Y Combinator as well. And even, you know, the process of applying or applying to Y Combinator or TinySeed, when you're going through the application process, it's actually going to teach you a little bit about your company in terms of the ways that you can talk about what your company does and kind of share those stats and save those answers for future applications or future resources down the road. And we keep the application fairly short. So we do say that the chances of you getting to TinySeed are the highest. Our sweet spot is between 500 to 20,000 dollars in MRR, MRR monthly. So that means that if you are below 500, it calls into question whether you've hit, have you proven your product, your market need essentially. So, and that also applies for pre-revenue startups because what we want to see and what our program is kind of designed for is for people who have kind of proven their market need and they're trying to scale to the next next uh, level. I think Rob calls it the uh, escape of velocity. So if you're below 500, you might be still working on that, like figuring out your market, figuring out where you need to go. And the program of Tennessee won't really fit for that category that you're in. Same thing it goes if you're super successful and we've been really honored, but there's been some people who have been over 20,000. They're like, hey, can we join Tiny C because of the mentorship and some other things we have? And that also is actually not the, the best, best fit for a program because that also means that means that you're in a different stage. So we kind of recommend between 500 and 20,000 because that means you'll get the most out of the program, the most out of the education and the one-on-ones and everything you do. People, you'll be closer to what other people in the batch are going through. And I kind of, you know, for the full year, you're going to be working with the other people, other founders in the cohort kind of going through the same problems together. So like Rob says, we definitely feel free to send in an application. We'll review it. It gets, gets you on our radar if you're say pre-revenue or just starting out, but your chances of getting in tiny seed are greatly increased if you're over $500 in MRR. Does that make sense, Rob? Yep. Yep. And I'll add, I think an adjustment or perhaps a, a yeah. difference in mental model for me. I think of it as $500 and up. So I don't think there's a cap at 20. I think in both of our batches that we've done so far, we've had folks get in who are higher than 20k MRR. So while that is, I think where a lot of folks yeah, wind up sweet spot, applying, actually. I think is yeah, the right way it's, to put it. Yeah. Yeah, sweet spot. But they're, we are absolutely open to folks doing 30, 40, 50k MRR. Because, and, and we do get people applying with that who say, the, you know, I don't need the cash right now. That, that's not going to make a huge difference, but it's it's the mentorship, it's the network, it's the being in the batch, it's it's all that stuff. So yeah. I, I like to think of it as no max on the on the MRR. Yeah, and I, any, I was just going to say, yeah, it's it's awesome to see these applications roll in no matter where you are, because again, the application is short and it gets you on our radar and allows us to, gives us a, a way that we can start chatting with you about what you're doing with the company and what we can do to help you out. Right, and we've had mu multiple people apply to two of the batches or sometimes three and it we just continue to have conversations with them you know and get updates over time and, and figure out if they're fit for it longer term all right next question what is your policy regarding repeat investments in the same space so basically a product with a high level of overlap with an existing portfolio company so anr if a company applied that is essentially competes you know i don't know head to head or even has overlap in a market what do you think we're we're doing with Tiny Seed here? I mean, <clears throat> I think if they came in and they were exactly the same position and exactly the same revenue and exactly like competitive, then we might have second thoughts. But 
the way that I think about it is like our goal is to invest in hundreds and hundreds of companies over the next few years. And so even if we had a very strict policy where it was, you know, we're going to do nothing competitive, then people are going to pivot after we invest and eventually something will be competitive. So, so yeah, now we don't have a policy against, against competitive products. I do think it makes it slightly harder just because, you know, we already have some existing, you know, relationships with the portfolio companies, but I don't think it's a disqualifier now. Yeah, all right. We have a question from Twitter. How many months would you average the churn rate over for a small business that could for a small business that could impact the result or LTV quite a bit? I may have had 33% churn last April, but I guess that's too far back to draw meaningful conclusions about the current state of the business. I'm going to take this one and either you can chime in if you feel like you want to add more. I I mean, yes, it is volatile. But when you're pre-product market fit, it's all over the place. If you have 33% churn and that is a consistent thing, then you basically lose all your customers every three months. That's not a that's just not a viable business at all. So personally, I would look back at the last couple months. I you could just give the, if the most recent, if it's six, seven, and eight percent churn or your last three months, just say the most recent month, you know. And if it's if you want to average those three, that's fine. But I wouldn't even look back over six months in my book. Typically, churn, if you start to hit that product market fit spot, churn does become a consistent number relatively, right? It might bounce before between three and four percent or three and five percent, but none of those have such a dramatic impact on this, on this question. So do the best you can. And you know, you can always say, I believe it's a text field, right? I, I think you can say it's 6% this month, but the past few months have been this, right? Or, I mean, we, we read through these. It's not like we're computers interpreting these things. So if you just want to say, hey, churn really is bouncing around, but this is my best guess, then that that's cool too, you know, and, and we'll start the conversation. Next question. We've grown really well in the past year, doubling revenue. Now our ARR is around $600,000. So they had applied previously. And the question is, I feel our valuation now may be uh, a bit above the standard investment terms for tiny seed since we're doing so much revenue. Is there any flexibility, whether it be higher funding or lower equity for later stage companies who may want a tiny seed investment in our set? What do you think about this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly. I mean, we're reasonably flexible, I think. I mean, most of our investments will be in that sort of sweet spot where we're doing you know, 112. Yeah, 10 to 12%. But yeah, we've, we've, in the past, we've given higher valuations, slightly lower equity, but we're, we're never going to be in a position where we've just taken advisory type share, like two or 3%. That's just not interesting for us. All right. Question about what industries and companies did you see thriving due to COVID this year that may hit a plateau in a post-COVID world? I think I'll chime in. Certainly podcasting took off like a shot, and but I don't necessarily see it plateauing. And I feel like the Zooms and the, the remote meeting tech certainly took off. And But again, I just, I don't see that necessarily going going back. I still think people are, are going to be using them moving forward. I think, I, think, I think some of the stuff is just like, it was an accelerant and people are like, oh, this works out. Like, I think like remote healthcare is a good example of that. Like certainly that exploded since COVID started, but now people are like, actually, I much prefer take getting my doctor to answer on a video call instead of being in a waiting room full of you know snotty kids. Yep. Yep. All right. Question from Garrett Lancaster. We just started providing annual payments or annual, yeah, annual payments where people can pay in advance for a year. Should we amortize those when calculating MRR in the application? Anar? Yes. That's the right answer. That's how you gotta do it. That's if you, if you go to raise funding, if you go to sell like you know, sell your company or anything, that's how SAS metrics are done. So yes, if you accept a payment for 
if you have if you're charging $100 a month, you accept a payment, usually you give what 15% or two months free. So you accept the payment for $1,000 for the next 12 months of, of service to a customer, then you have to take that 1000, you divide it by 12, and you spread it over the next 12 months. All right, Tony Chan. Oh, we are. Oh, I, I think you retweeted. Yeah, sorry, there's that was not a question. Marcel Folly, my SaaS isn't launched yet, but it's already making $1,000 or more in MRR, or more than 1000 in MRR because the first customer couldn't wait and was happy already with the MVP. Am I right for the program? Yeah, Say yes, on. please. Call <laughs> us. <laughs> These are the ones, again, if you're in doubt, apply. Like we're not, you're not going to get in trouble. It doesn't, we're not going to be mad at you. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, if you're in doubt, at least we can then, because oftentimes for me, it's like, well, it depends. I'd love to see your numbers. I'd love to hear more about your business. It depends on what space you're in. You know, it just depends. And if you fill out the application, then we have that. And it's, you know, 15 or 20 questions, you can fill it out and and we can take take a peek at it. Okay. We do have a question from Tony Chan. I believe we had a miss, um, miss, <laughs> miss paste, misfire. Xander had pasted in a tweet. He was about to tweet into to Tony's question. So, Tony says, I believe you're looking to fund 20 to 25 companies, which is two times more than previous batches. How will you maintain all the intimacy camaraderie with bigger batch? So batch one was 10 and batch two was 13. And he's correct. I believe we'll be in the neighborhood of 20 this time. It won't be 25. I think it'll be about 20. I, I do too. Yeah. Tracy, how do you intimacy ah, and camaraderie? I, know, I was waiting for this. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's funny, we went from 10 to 13, but the second batch has actually more double, like two founder companies. And so the number of founders doubled around that. that it was a lot more this time Almost, around. Yeah. So we already had like some, some thought process put into the second year to kind of keep this like intimacy that we were able to capture in the first year. So we try to mix events, like have as like good online it sucks we have to do everything online again because of COVID because the easy answer is, hey, we'll be doing like live, or excuse me, um, in-person retreats. And that's really awesome for us with uh, camaraderie, but we can't do that now with COVID. So we've been doing online retreats, which is unfortunate. It's over Zoom, but it's more safe. We have th- we have do online retreats throughout the year with all the, the founders together. We kind of combine it a business plus fun. So like presentations and showing what people are up to and then playing games together. We played Among Us. We've done trivia. We've done these other things to kind of, you know, keep up the fun, even though everyone is, you know, all over the world. And in terms of the day-to-day program, we have a mix between calls that involve everybody in the batch, but also we split people into smaller masterminds because when it's everyone in the batch, when you have 20 plus people in a call, it's really hard to like keep up the camaraderie. It gets very overwhelming. You don't want to listen to that many updates. So we do split people into smaller masterminds so they can have like a small group that kind of is, you know, in their, their company like their companies kind of fit together so that people can share their updates in a smaller group and the tiny seed team joins these masterminds as well. And so they get kind of that like more intimate one-on-one aspect with the other companies in the batch in that way. So basically I want to say is we kind of split the difference. We have like some large events that involves everybody together and we have some small events to kind of keep it less over, make it so it's less overwhelming. Yeah. And the bottom line is even with batch one, when we had 10 companies and I believe we had maybe had 12 founders, it was already the, the all batch calls were kind of big. And we knew that unless we were going to fund eight companies a batch, we had to get from that, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it's the issue of, hey, we have one web server going to two is hard, but going to three, four, five is easy because you figured it out. And at the moment we did batch two, we were like, 
we need to have smaller groups. We need to do masterminds, just what Tracy's described. And that worked really well. And we found it worked perhaps be, you know, better than the, the all group approach. So us now scaling from 13 to 20, I think is going to be easier than even when we went from 10 to 13, you know, and had to, had to do that split. So it's good. Next question. We have good numbers on market size for the United States, and there is most definitely a large global market, but we haven't been able to find great data. Should we take a stab for the application or just use the solid numbers we do have? Inar? Sorry, I was looking at the other questions. Oh, man. All right. So I, know, I, have I would say, too. <laughs> I keep looking yeah, at the questions. <laughs> I would say just use the market size that you have just say hey in the us oh, yeah. that we think the market is this big and i mean we're not you know again we don't you don't the market doesn't need to be a billion dollars to be a tiny seed company you know if you can grow to 5 10 20 million like that's a win for everyone so use what you have and and again you can you can clarify and you can say we've looked and the data on the world is is unclear maybe it's estimated at this from these sources but the us data is this and and we're really, not computers what we're looking for is like have you thought about it you know yeah. like have you really thought about is there a, is this a big enough market for it to be a, a reasonably meaningful business? Yeah. All right. Jason Noakes asks, I'm filling out the application. I have a question about customers. He puts customers in quotes. I have, because I think we say, how many customers do you have? I have a B2B SaaS system where we have 15,000 active free users, but only 25 paying advertiser customers. Obviously 15,000 looks better than 25. Which should I use for customers? So a user is someone who isn't paying you and using your app. A customer is someone who is paying you money. So that's my interpretation. And we've never had this question internally, but I would not want to see 15,000 because then if, you're, if your MRR is $1,000, then you're going to divide that by 15,000 and your average revenue per, per customer is going to look crazy small. So I would say if people are paying you, they are a customer. Otherwise, they are just a user. Any thoughts from the other Tiny Seed panelists on that? No, I think that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. A question from Cyprian Maril. He says, is edu slash research tech under your domains of interest yes i don't do we have a domain a b2b domain that isn't in our interest like we don't i haven't seen one that i've i i don't think we've had an applicant where i'm like oh we don't invest in podcasts or you know i mean there that's not how we think about it we think about SaaS that serves a need usually for a business or at least someone who's not super super price sensitive and it's paid on a subscription, you know, it has, it has the mechanics and kind of the metrics of a, of a subscription uh, software company. Correct. Do you have a preferred formula for LTV? My preferred formula, I use, use what you're comfortable with. My preferred formula is to take your, your average revenue per user and you divide it by your churn. So if your average revenue per customer is $100 a month and your churn is 5%, you divide it by 0.05, that gives you $2,000, that's a lifetime. That's the simplest one. There are, use use what you want. If you're pulling out of bare metrics, don't use anything you want, use one that's reasonable. But if you're pulling out of bare metrics, profit well, chart mogul, Stripe, and it's giving you MRR, that's fine. You know, and or if you're in Summit, and you know, those, they, they do, they don't all calculate them exactly the same, but they are close enough for our purposes. And if it shows that, $1,850 versus $1,950 for a lifetime value. Those are approximately the same in, you know, for all intents, uh, for our purposes. George Horn asked, knowing what you look for in startup, knowing that you look for startups that are already generating revenue, here's our situation. We are, we are off the gates. We are, 
yeah, I'm trying to think. We, we've gotten off the starting line, generated around 50,000 euros in 2020. Last year, however, also included a pivot and we did not launch our new product yet. So the 50, 50K comes from an API solution, which we no longer focus on while the new SaaS is essentially pre-launch. How does that make how does that make us as a candidate or not for your third batch? I think this is another one of those like apply and then we'll see, you know, because we need to know a little bit more than that. Like it's, it's like, why did you pivot and what are you pivoting into? And like, you know, uh, you know, all that stuff. So do you I already have traffic? Probably. Right. Do you have traffic channels that we're using the API that now would use the new app or is, is it a cold start? You know, it's all that stuff, right? We would need to. So I would say the same. I would say apply. We'll have a look and, you know have a conversation if I think it can be a fit. Can salary caps be adjusted over time with inflation or market changes? ANR. So prior to today, just so folks know if you missed it, our salary caps were based on a software engineer's salary in the closest major city. And when we did that, it was adjusted over time. As of today, we've just announced, and we'll, we need to announce this a little more, a little more broadly later in the week. But we have made a flat salary cap for everyone uh, in Tiny Seed that is a quarter million dollars U.S. So it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars that you can pull out of your company before you have to, you know, before you can, before you need to take dividends, right? So the question then, Anar, can salary caps be adjusted now that we've raised it to two hundred and fifty k? I think it'll be a while for now. Yeah. I it feels but, like, it but feels I mean, like 10 years from now, if 250, if inflation goes completely out of control and 250 is the dollar is worthless. Yeah, we can, we'll definitely talk about it. Like our goal right. with the salary cap really is not to like, like the return from investors doesn't come from like squeezing the most amount, you know, whether the salary cap is X, Y, Z, the return really comes from companies doing really, really well. And like, all we're trying to say is if you're taking out $10 million in cash every year, it's fair that our investors get to participate. Right. Is the investor dividend based on the equity. Yes, it is. So if we own 12% of your company and you you pull out dividends, then Tiny Seed, that's how Tiny Seed gets paid. Like Tiny Seed gets 12% of the dividends. If there are multiple founders, do you require all founders to be full-time? So one clarification I'll throw out is to be our, to qualify as a founder for our funding, you, you know, cause we pay 120 or we, we fund 120K for the first and 60K for each additional. To qualify as a founder, the individual needs to own 15% or more of the company. And to qualify for the funding, that extra 60K, that person would need to go full-time on the company. If they decide not to, that's fine. They are, we will, you know, if we want to fund you, we'll still fund you, but you would get the funding for one founder. Correct. Does that, that make sense? All right. Okay. Neil Cocker. Okay. So he says, just to be clear, it's not a non-dilute clause. You just get a preferential share deal in order to maintain your stake on the cap table. Yeah, this is a question about the side letter. I, okay. so, so really what the side letter is, is mostly around the salary cap and sort of says, okay, you're, I'm the founder. If I'm taking, once I get to 250,000 in salary above that, I will kick it out as dividends. Everything else is in the sort of standard equity terms. Like if we own 10%, we have a pro rata right in the subsequent rounds to defend our 10% stake. That's the non-dilutive part of it. The side letter is, is simply to do with the dividends and the salary cap. Very good. Okay. What are some of the factors you look at before onboarding a company? I understand that Tiny Seed prefers B2B SaaS and a company in the revenue stage what factors other than those? We have a big list, huh? 
It, there's a I'm lot of stuff, right? I'm going through them as fast as possible. So I've answered a lot of questions oh, by text. Okay. So we're we're getting, we're doing pretty good. But yeah, that we should answer this one live. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I the the bottom line is we have a we have a doc that's like 42 different points, and it's like traction and the, the you know the the team. Do they have this experience? What's the product like? You know, all the things you would think about if you were trying to evaluate a company. When I mess this on a podcast or in a situation like this, I say there's three P's that I look at. It's the people. It's product market fit. Do you have it or not? And it's price sensitivity. So the people is obvious. It's like, are the founders either experienced in this space so they have a unique advantage or are they just folks who are shipping and getting things done and have they made progress? You know, probably probably doing it on the side. Have they shown us that they can ship and get traction? Product market fit. Do you have it or not? That That's where we look at the revenue stuff. If you have zero revenue, you don't have product market fit. No one's paying you. Uh, there's you know, a point, it, product market fit is obviously not a binary thing, it's a continuum. So how, what, what's your churn like? The lower your churn in general, the lower, your, you know, the, the more product market fit you have. And there's a bunch of stuff we can talk about there about do you have channels of customers coming in and signing up and onboarding and, and not churning? Well, then, you know, you have, have a little more product market fit there. And the third one is price sensitivity. If the most you can charge your customers is $9 a month or $14 a month, you, it's not impossible to build a, a multi-million dollar business on that. It's really, really, really hard. You have to be in a massive space with massive lead flow. So those are like three high level things that that we look at. Your existing traction certainly is one. Traction can be a lot of a lot of users. It can be a lot of customers. It can be a lot of revenue. Anything else to add either of the other panelists? No, I think that makes sense. I mean, like we often look at like, yeah, industry experience is a big thing. Like if you're, if you're doing a B2B SaaS in the construction industry and like you've been selling SaaS software or, or dealt with it in the construction industry, that's obviously a huge plus, but I think you summed it up pretty well. Excellent. Question I'll pass to Anar. Is there an option to buy your equity out in the future? So to buy tiny seed out? The, the, the short answer is no. Um, and really the, the answer for that sort of boils down to the kinds of outcomes that we think will happen in certain cases. Like we think there'll be some companies that, you know, we'll get to the, we'll just take off like a rocket and sell for $500 million, in which case, you know, we, it doesn't make any sense from an investor perspective for, for us to, to have some sort of an agreed upon, agreed upon price that way you can rebay, repay the, the equity. That, in that case, it becomes much more of a debt type product. And when you have more of a debt type product, then you need to be a lot more aggressive as an investor to, to, to get capital back quicker. So we don't really want to do that. We think of ourselves as like long-term investors aligned with the founders. We don't really want any money coming our way unless you're also putting money in your pocket, basically. Yeah, from the start, we decided we don't want to be alone. <laughs> we don't want to be alone that you pay back and we want to be in your corner for the long term. That's exactly how I think about it. And if you can pay us back a multiple and, oh, you know, now we don't own anything, then it's like, what, why? What's our incentive to like help you in the long term and help you get there, right? So I have always liked, if I was going to raise money for, for any of my companies, for Drip especially, it was going to be equity because I wanted people who were in it. And it's just the most, there's a reason our terms are the way they are. You know, we, we take equity, it's simple. We, you know, we have the salary cap and it's pretty much, and then we go and then we're, and then we're essentially we're business partners and we're a super minority partner, right? We don't have all this control that, that some other investors may look at, but that's, that's it. And that we don't take net profit. We don't take top line revenue, which many, you know, in, independent kind of financing or these alt funding 
aspects do. And the neat reason they need to do that is like Aynor said, they need to get that revenue back so fast because they do allow you to buy, you know, to buy some equity back. Although I would say that the the terms uh, you see online for some of them are maybe not not the ones that are being submitted to uh, everyone. So so be care- be careful with that. These these if then else clauses can be uh, pretty complicated. All right. Do you invest in S corps? We cannot legally invest in S corps. Yeah, an S corp cannot take. It's purely a law thing, but they cannot take investment from a fund. So we can invest in C corps and LLCs. You can you can you can reasonably easily give up your S corp designation and become a yes. C corp. And there are some huge, pretty enormous benefits to that actually, particularly if you're looking to sell. So, <clears throat> if particularly in the U.S., if you're a C corp and there's some qualifier stuff, but pretty much broadly, if you're a C corp and you have hold that equity or own that company for five or more years and then you sell, then there's something called QSBS, which is qualified small business stock which is an exemption that means that when you sell for the first 10 million that comes your way or your investor's way, you don't pay any tax at all, including at least in the federal level. So there's no, not even any long-term capital gains. So there is actually a pretty big benefit to switching to a C-Corp. That's, that's probably worth exploring. But yeah, no, we can't. We're not legally allowed to invest in an S-Corp. And we, we have had a, a few. Yeah, if you want to have a path-through entity that's really important to you, then an LLC is the way to go. And we have had a few companies apply with S Corp and convert, I believe. Yeah, and we've had a couple of portfolio companies who've been LLCs who've decided that, you know what, a C Corp is better for me and then yep. convert. What is the process and timeline once the application is submitted? Tracy Osborne, I can see you looking at other questions. Did I you know. hear me? I, I'm typing really fast for all these yeah, things, yeah. but I heard you. A lot of questions. Yeah. So this is actually repeated after if you submit an application, an email that gets sent from me to you, to the applicant that kind of runs through the process. And essentially we're spending the next, so the applications are for two weeks and we'll start reviewing applications probably starting next week, but it takes us a while, depending on the number of applications we get. Our first round of updates, maybe we're trying to tell people if they're not a good fit for tiny C, we're trying to tell people as fast as possible. Hopefully that'll be coming at the end of the month. But if you don't hear from us, that means that we're still reviewing your application. So reviews are probably going through February. Hopefully in February, we'll start sending out acceptances, but that's where we have our calls and our interviews, starting with me, moving on to Robin Anar. And then after that process is due diligence for people who have gotten a initial acceptance into tiny C, which is also a part of the process that I didn't really have a good appreciation for until I was in this position. I never really realized that it doesn't end even after, you know, a investment firm says that they want to fund you. And then there's a whole like month plus process of talking to lawyers and reviewing docs. But that's essentially the process for a accepted company for people who are not good fit. Like I said, we're going to, we'll get back to everyone eventually. And we try to be very upfront and clear about that. Yeah, one, one thing to point out there is that although like if we present a term sheet and even though after the term sheet, there is a bunch of diligence that looks at your corporate structure and the legal stuff, like we won't change our terms after issuing a term sheet unless we find something really, really bad. So like it'll take a while, but if we say, okay, mm-hmm. we've decided to invest in you, then that's, you know, sort of our words are bound in that regard. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why it's the applications are now, but the next cohort is starting in May and just gives us time to go through that whole process. Yep. And we fund in what, March or April, depending, and depending on how long due diligence takes. And then May 1 is mm-hmm. essentially the start of batch three, and it runs for a year from there. Jason Weibert asks, how do you approach applications where the person has previously acquired a SaaS, anything in particular you would look for in that situation? So if you've previously... Uh, 
is he I, anyone is he asking sure he, he bought yeah if you previously acquired one and you're working on a new one then all our criteria would would apply it's just a new SaaS. but if you have bought a SaaS and you're trying to grow it i would say apply with it and just point out hey i bought this SaaS x months ago and you know again it's a conversation but we are not opposed it, it we're probably not going to fund you know 50 percent of our batch of acquired SaaS, but it's certainly not a a deal breaker or anything that would disqualify you we would just love to know that and have a conversation about that to know you know your history with with the app that work yeah what hap tracy what happens after the one-year accelerator yeah it's a great question tiny seed is not officially in it's like once you're part of tiny seed you're actually a part of tiny seed forever so you still have access to mentors and one-on-one -on -one time with the tiny seed team the only thing that really stops is the call schedule and the mentor calls that we have it just like essentially your day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week activities end people usually continue continue the masterminds that they had set up during the tiny seed year and then they can continue ping, ping me for help and ask for mentor help and be a part of our slack community or receive they get notifications of whenever we get a new perk from a partner. So essentially it's like you, you pretty much stay into tiny seed, but you don't have any other obligations for calls. Yeah. And I mean, to give people an idea, there's only, you know, we have 10 alums, right. From batch one, cause batch two is still going on. And I still talk to, you know, a good chunk of those alums. I mean, I believe I had two calls last week, probably in the past when I mean, the holidays messed stuff up, but in a given month, I probably have like four calls with alums because either I reach out and just like, Hey, I miss talking to you. I'm curious to hear, or, you know, they reach out to, to one of us and they either need an intro. They want, you know, to talk to a mentor. They want to talk to me and get an opinion. I reviewed someone's deck last week. You know, there's it, like Tracy said, it doesn't end. It's just the, cu the curriculum and kind of the hardcore yeah. program, you know, uh, transitions, but you're yeah. always, always a tiny C founder. And again, when we have in-person events, because tiny C is a microcom fund, there will be things around microcom. So whenever we have like in-person events as well. Yep. If you were evaluating two similar companies, I'll send this one to Anar. If you were evaluating two similar companies and could only invest in one, what would be the most important criteria for you in your decision making? And I would, I would just say there is no one criteria. There's, there, there's there is two, not one. Right? It really depends, and it sort of ties into the question coming down, down at the bottom there too. Like, is there any month-to-month -month growth percentage that we consider favorable? I feel like it really depends on where the company is. Like, you know, like. You know, if you're very early, I'm, we're probably a little bit more understanding on like variable churn and things because you're kind of early, you know, but, but we'd probably like to see a bit more growth then, to, to be honest with you. And if you're later and more established, then, you know, if you then also have quite high churn, that would probably be a concern for us. So if I were to pick something, like churn is probably the main thing. Like if I have two very, very similar companies and I have one company that has two three percent churn a month something like that and another one that has 20 then i'm going to go with the low churn pretty much all the time because it sort of suggests that people are happy they're sticking around they keep paying they're just doing their thing versus if you're churning at those kind of numbers it suggests you haven't really found product market fit even though maybe you're very good at selling or convincing people to buy but then when they get in and use it it doesn't fit their need or, or, or they don't want to use it anymore Next question is, you said you have two batches a year, which yes, it's an, that's a new thing starting in 2021 because we were able to raise uh, our second fund. So this next batch, which is three, it starts in May, on May 1st. When is the next, next application process and when does the next batch start? So I'm going to throw out, I mean, we've like loosely thrown this around, but I believe next applications will open in July. That's six months from now. 
And then the next batch would start November 1. And if we, you know, we'd have a meetup in October or something, if we could do that. Is that because we have microconf That's what I was anticipating, yeah. Yeah. So that's our, it's not set in stone. This year is, it's, you know, going to be just an inter another interesting year, we think. So we have to play by ear, but that, that'd be the loose timeline for that. And we got to get through these applications first. <laughs> yeah. always, every time we go through an application process, it kind of informs how the application process go, should go next time. So I hesitate to put out any dates or deter like good and solid information until we've gone through this month. Yep. Well, there's a good question about that. Uh, will there be a second application later in the year? Yes. If so, and applying in January feels a little premature for my company, but later in the year will be better. Would you advise waiting to apply later or applying now to get on the radar? Interesting question. I don't know. I would think apply now. So. It doesn't hurt. It just, it, that's the thing yeah. I keep thinking is it doesn't hurt. It doesn't, we're not offended or we're not, it doesn't give us a bunch of extra work. It doesn't bother me to read through an application. And it, it, again, if it and takes you 15, like you 20, applied, 30 minutes. Yeah. If you applied and you were at like 80 MRR and you know, all right. And then it's like, starts just a little too early. And then six months later you came in and says, Hey, I was, I was at 80. Now I'm at XYZ. Right. Then you have solid data points that you're not just making that stuff up. So yeah. Yeah. And I do, I don't have a, uh, it's not like an automated system, but I do manually will track some people and note in their application, the future applications that they reapplied and add those numbers in. So it's nice to have that data available too. It's definitely not like a huge factor, I think, in reviewing. It just, it can help. And if you don't think it's like going to take you, like our application is pretty short. So if you don't think it's going to take you like a huge amount of time, then you could do it and there could be an additional benefit later on the road. But if you're if you are swamped, you're working on some big things, you're pretty sure that, that you'd you think you'd be a better fit this summer and you don't have the time to do an application, it's not going to hurt your, your summer application if you don't do one now. All right. If the, there's some, I'm going through some questions that are duplicates and cutting them out because we only we have about seven minutes left and questions continue to pour in. Thanks so much, everybody, for, for hanging around. Man, we're still at 115 people. That's great. Okay. In the application form, you ask, what is the total? What is your total team size, full-time plus part-time? Is this the number of founders as, as defined by Rob earlier, or does it include contractors? So this is, this is total team size, because earlier on we ask you, who are your founders? And you list them out. So we can just look there and say, oh, you have two founders. But this includes yeah, your team size, if you have two full-time employees and three or four contractors that are working a reasonable amount, you know, then include all that in the number. If you have a contractor who you hired this month to do a one-off report and they did 20 hours of work, like I wouldn't include them on your team, but it's people you're doing recurring work with. Again, take your best guess. If you need to qualify it, that's fine. It, it doesn't, you know, there's no, right or, there's no right or wrong answer to these. It's just for us to get our head around what, what your business looks like. Okay, there may be other expenses apart from salary. Would all of that be deducted before calculating the dividend? Absolutely. Anar, you wanna you wanna talk about that? Yeah, I mean basically dividends. Dividend, dividends is literally like what is the leftover profit that you know once you've once you've done everything you want to do with the company. If you if you have you know a bunch of money coming in, a bunch of revenue coming in, and you decide to reinvest all that into your company, there is no money left over for dividends. So, you know, by definition, expenses are, are, are taken away first. Yeah, and that's the thing. We are not, we don't take net profit. We don't take top line revenue. So none of that matters. It's if you as the founder, we want the founder to be in control. So if you want to leave, you know, half a million or a million dollars in your business bank account and not pull it out as a dividend, 
it's not like that passes through to us or that we automatically get that. It's the moment that you take out a distribution to the founders that's above your salaries, then you take cash out and we get our pro rata share of that. That's that's all it is. So there's no fancy. There is there is there is one asterisk to that. If you are okay. an LLC corporation and you decide yes. you have a million dollars in profit, that's true. Then because you're an LLC and we own part of the LLC, that gets passed through. And so you have to distribute enough to cover our taxes at least. Uh, and I, probably it makes sense for you to do so to cover your own taxes. Yes. Thanks for thanks for pointing that out. That's that one exception. Basically, no one leaves a million dollars in cash in a SaaS business. So it was yeah. it was an outrageous example. But all right. How do you compute monthly churn if only yearly packages are being sold? I haven't even thought about that. I would go to be honest, just Google it and see what people are doing. I mean, if I were to think off the cuff, then you should, well, assuming you've been around for a year, you should see how much people are churning each month. Yeah, I don't know. I might need to take that one offline and kind of think about how I would handle that. I don't know, fan. Anar, yeah, you're in the same boat as me. We just haven't seen, we haven't seen know. that. There's like a monthly equivalent that adds up to an annual, but it starts to get really complicated. And I would just put, there's it again, it's a text field, I think. So just I put like, this is the annual, whatever, whatever makes sense for you, for your business. Right, right. All right. How much does burn play a role in your decision? I mean, and burn for those who aren't familiar is uh, if you're losing money each month, right? If you are paying out more than you're bringing in. Do, does Tiny Seed prefer early stage profitable businesses or is growth more important than profitability in these early days? What do you think, Aynar? I'm not super bothered. I think there's a, yeah, sorry. I, I asked you and then I started talking over you, but what, what do you think? That's okay. Uh, no, no. I, I think like, being profitable like if you're if you were at 5 million or 10 million ARR sure being profitable is interesting if you're doing 8000 MRR do you get bonus points for having a 500 dollars a month a profit no i would probably say you kind of too early to optimize for that so you know you know it it almost be a little bit of a red flag like don't you have some money to spend 500 something to spend 500 bucks on so yeah i think earlier on probably probably growth that being said, like burn, like if you're like, so, so there's like, that's a difference between break even and, 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 you know, profitable. If you're burning a lot of money, if it's like you've already taken some cash or you're taking your own savings and you have a team of 15 and like you're, you need to be shoveling cash into the business, that probably is, is a bit of a concern for us. And, and we would question what's so special about this B2B SaaS business or whatever that it needs to burn that much money. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's what I was going to say. We're running short on time, but I want to get to these next one. Apart from the 120, or apart from the investment, what else do we get from Tiny Seed? You were mentioning marketing, blah, blah, blah. So we don't actually, like, Tiny Seed doesn't actually do marketing for you. That's up to the founders and, and you know, the folks you hire. We offer funding. We offer the community of the batch, which is super, if you see all the, the kind of quotes and the testimonials and when, when our batch founders talk about stuff, they will often say, Hey, you know, the money was great. And I, and I thought the mentorship would be, you know, like the number one thing, but the community and actually being in it with other founders has tends to be the, the big draw. The mentorship both from Tracy, Anar, and myself, all startup founders who've been there as well as the mentor list, tinyc.com slash people, including, you know, the it, it's like a, a who's who of MVP of, of SaaS founders and subject matter experts. And then there's our network, very, very extensive in terms of, oh, I'm going to, anybody know how to do this in Stripe or how to do a, a AppSumo deal? And it's like, yeah, I know three people who did one last year. Let me hook you up. Right. It's just intros and intros. And it's just knowing people. So 
how should you represent monthly revenue when it consists of MRR plus one-time payments? I would say if the one-time pay, just specify it in the application so we can read it, you know, say, hey, it was 5K MRR plus 1K in one-time payments, but the but pretty much every month there's about 1K in one-time payments. I mean, that's really what we're looking for. If it was a one-off thing where, oh, just this month we got 1K and we don't get that every month, I would just leave it out altogether. But if it's a fairly consistent, you know, overage fees that content to get paid or fairly consistent setup fees, and it's usually around 1K, I, I would include it and just just specify. Regarding salary draw, what if you have an existing company, say a consulting business, and you're using it to fund the SaaS under the same legal entity? Does that salary draw restriction apply to the corporate entity as a whole, or could it be only based on what you pull from the SaaS? You would, before we invested, you would probably need to spin up a separate entity for the SaaS, and we would invest in that. Yep. All right. It's 10, well, it's 10 a.m. Pacific here. We got through 91 questions. So oh my gosh. Did. Yeah, I think <laughs> I I'm just going to stop text there. Text or voice. I think that's enough. I think yeah. that's it. Yeah. I feel free there's... to email us if you have questions or reach out yeah. on Twitter or, or anything totally. like that. Totally. Yeah. If we uh, couldn't get you'll to reach it. me. Yeah. yeah. DMs are open on Twitter. You can send an email to hello at tinyc.com. Come straight to me. I can refer, I can bring it up to Robin Adar if needed. Um, so definitely reach out if we didn't answer your question and you need more help. Awesome. Thanks everyone who showed up. It's been a great hour and we will see you on the Twitters and certainly reach out if you need to. Bye.